And before I start, I will pause at the names. I, I listened to the, what the Bible, what the, the thing that everyone uses, not the gateway one. You version, yes. And I listened to it, and I wrote my own little pronunciation next to the names. And so when you see me stumble, it's because I'm trying to read my own pronunciation. All right. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, a brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. To Aphia, our sister. To Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your house, in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has, been, has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Paphras, my fellow prisoner in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. So I had something of a scare a couple of years ago. It wasn't about my health, but about my family lineage. It turns out that my father's mother, you know, the name has disappeared because it was my mother, my grandmother, my paternal grandmother's name, but it turns out she's a Hawkins. And she was very proud of the fact that our family's been in this country for a long time. 
My brother traced back the lineage, and he's found some Hawkins in Rhode Island in the 1690s. She was proud of the fact that we've been here for a long time because there's not a whole lot else in the family lineage to be proud of. It's We weren't particularly successful. We had no money. But anyway, you know, how can you be here from the 1600s and still mm, not be wealthy? But she's a Hawkins. So my brother was telling me a little bit about this, and, and actually my father, who had a little bit of this family pride, had told my brother that Hawkins was actually, in his era, a better navigator than Sir Francis Drake. Now, maybe you know Sir Francis Drake because he was the first person to circumnavigate the globe a little wrinkle. He was the second person to circumnavigate, but I don't know. He did it in a single boat. I don't know. Anyway, famous navigator. And Sir Francis Drake was a vice admiral who fought off the Spanish Armada. Turns out that Hawkins was also a vice admiral that fought off the Spanish Armada. So my brother's telling me a little bit about this, and I go on Wikipedia. And it turns out that when Hawkins was not fighting off the Spanish Armada, as navigators were wont to do in that day, he was running slaves. And in fact, he was the biggest slave runner of his generation in the triangle between, uh, you know, well, quadrilateral maybe, between uh, England and Africa and Jamaica and the U.S. And, that, you know, Rhode Island was a, Newport was a big slave entry point. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's great to have that. No money and slave runners. But as it turns out, when I called my brother to complain, he said, no, don't worry about it, because it we're not really descendants of that, direct descendants of that Hawkins, because he had found deeds where our relatives, where our ancestors had bought property, and they had signed with an X. They couldn't even write their own name. So we're the white trash part of the family, not the wealthy, important navigator part of the family. Now, this is not just a little story about my own, you know, brokenness. Uh, you know, Philemon. Philemon raises, or should raise, similar issues for all of us. Particularly, the traditional interpretation of what's going on in Philemon. Because according to the traditional interpretation of what's happening in Philemon, Philemon is a slave owner. And the Apostle Paul is writing to him about his slave, Anisimus. And the traditional interpretation is that we, we, the, the, the book doesn't give us a lot of detail. This is a letter, right? When you write a letter to somebody, you're only expecting the people who receive the letter to read it, so you're not filling in all the background. They already know the background, you know the background, and you're taking the conversation from halfway forward. So we have to extrapolate what's going on in Philemon. What, what was the prehistory? of their relationship. And the traditional interpretation was that Anismus was an unbelieving slave and he ran away for freedom. And somehow he got converted. And somehow he stumbled across the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul said, well, Anismus, now that you're converted, you have to go back into slavery. And you know, that really should pose a problem for us that the Apostle Paul would use his influence not to get Philemon to free Anismus, but he'd use his influence to send Anismus 
back into slavery. This should be an embarrassment if it's right. Now there's a couple of suggestions, a couple of indications that it's probably not right. But first I should point out that slavery in the first century was not nearly the brutality that it was in 19th century America. Uh, slaves, uh, one-third of the, uh, it's estimated that in the first century, one-third of the population of Rome was slaves, and another third is what, what's called freedmen. So there were three classes of people, really, uh, more, but three basic categories of people in the first century, slaves, freedmen, and freemen. So the freedmen were slaves that had been freed. And it was the common expectation that by the time a slave reached 40, they'd be freed. So Rome was about one-third freedmen, estimated, one-third always free, and one-third slave. Some of the most famous administrators and prominent government officials and uh, uh, like tutors and the ancient equivalent of professors, uh, tutors in the rich families, some of the more prominent people were slaves. What they would do is sell themselves into indentured servitude for a time to an owner who would then subsequently uh, free them. They could also accumulate wealth. I mean, basically, when if a slave worked, two-thirds of his, if he worked outside for income, two-thirds of his income went to his owner, but one-third he was able to keep for himself and then buy himself out of slavery. So it wasn't nearly the brutality of 19th century America. But still, it meant you didn't have the right of self-determination. It also meant that if you married, it was a different sort of marriage. You could marry. It was a different sort of marriage, and your children belonged to the master, the owner. So even though it's not nearly as brutal as 19th century America, if that's what's going on here, it shows that Paul is at least entirely conservative to preserving a culture not the least bit revolutionary. It's not as bad a problem as it might be, but it's still a problem, I think. Now, as it happens, recent, ac recently academics have argued that probably something else is going on in the book of Philemon. Anisimus is still a slave. Philemon, still a slave owner. Paul sending a letter to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. But probably what is happening is this. Probably not that Onesimus ran away, got converted, somehow stumbled across the Apostle Paul, who was in jail at the time. And the Apostle Paul said, look, now that you're a Christian, even though it means you may get beaten to death, you still have to go back. Probably what was happening is this. Anisimus likely got into trouble with his master over some business dealing, perhaps. Slaves would often run the household, run all the, uh, run the family business. Because, uh, you know, if you were a slave owner, it was really beneath you to do actually do work, business. Not just manual labor, but, but business kind of work, accounting and, and selling. You'd leave that in, under the jurisdiction of your slaves so that then you could sit around and discuss philosophy or do, you know, literate pursuits. 
So likely Onesimus had messed up somehow. And he realized he was going to be under severe repercussions. So he likely fled and interceded with Paul because he knew of the connection between Paul and Philemon. It's highly unlikely that Onesimus just randomly stumbled across the Apostle Paul, who was in prison at the time about 100 miles away. He would have set out to find Paul so that Paul would write a letter. Paul would intervene with the master, Philemon, to get Onesimus forgiven and back in his good graces. Now, just to show you that this is not an invention to save the Apostle Paul, I've included a letter in the bulletin. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger. There were two Plinys, the elder and the younger. This is a letter from Pliny the Younger from the late first century, sometime between the 80s and 90s, so maybe 30 years after Paul wrote, 40 years after Paul wrote. There's a, there's a letter that's still as extant from history where Pliny writes on behalf, not of a slave, but he writes on behalf of a freedman, a man who had been a slave and got into trouble with his boss, the, the head of his household. Freedmen could still stay in the same household. And, he got an, and then Pliny intervened. You had in the first century a concept of called patronage. You have a patron and a client. And basically, if you're in trouble with somebody, you can appeal to their patron to intervene because the client has to respect the patron, has to do what the patron asks of him. So probably what is happening here is that Paul is intervening at Onesimus' request on behalf of Onesimus so that he can go back to the only home he has with Philemon in the household as a slave. It's probably at Onesimus' request. But there's more that's going on. If you grew up in Asia, you'll be familiar with the notion of indirect communication. If you grew up in Anglo schools, mainstream schools in America, you may have no idea what indirect communication is because American schools try and teach you to be, what do they call it? Not aggressive, but assertive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Exactly the point. You see, Americans overseas are known for being obnoxiously confrontational. And yet still, we have assertive courses so we can tell people clearly what we want of them and expect of them. But a lot of cultures don't work that way. I've told you the story before. When I was in, first got to Singapore and I was trying to set up a household and Irene was pregnant in the hospital giving birth and then in a couple days after birth and I'm having to set up the household and I have to go out and buy a lot of things and there was no Kmart at the time. I don't know where to buy all these family shops. I don't know where to buy stuff, which particular thing I want. So I go into a store and I ask, well, do you have these plastic bags for the trash or whatever it was I was asking for? And they said, oh, we're out of stock. So I come back two or three days later. Do you have them now? Oh, we're out of stock. After about two weeks, I realized that's not the kind of store to buy it at. They were never going to tell me no that they didn't have them, that they never carried them, because that's kind of not what you do. You don't say no directly to a customer. It's just always out of stock, indirect communication. Or at that same time, you know, British use indirect communication more than Americans do. At that same time, you know, I mean, was in the hospital. We rented an old apartment, and I have to clean the apartment, and I'm going to move her in. And we went on a training course, and some of our 
colleagues, new missionaries in that training course offered to help me clean the house so my wife could come in. And I'm in a training course and I'm trying to learn Chinese and I've got a wife in the hospital, a new kid on the way and an apartment to clean. And I said, sure, it'd be great to have help cleaning this apartment. And the director of the training course said to me, I'm sure, he was British, he said, I'm sure people would like to help you if they had time. Now, to me, that meant, great, they can help, because they're often, they must have time. And to him, it meant, they can't help. <laughs> they don't have time. <laughs> and so only after they helped, conveniently, did I realize what he was really trying to say, and then I went back to and apologized. Indirect communication. What I want to show you from this text this morning is that Paul is using indirect communication throughout. But it is so strong, he might just as well be shouting at Philemon. So no, it's tastelessly strong in direct communication. No, the Bible never says God's people cannot have slaves. But by the time Philemon got this letter, he could not possibly keep Onesimus as his slave. It just would have been Way too much trouble. So follow me as we work our way through the book. What we're going to do is actually look at two things. We're going to look at the first issue is does the Bible condone slavery? And the second issue is how does that apply to other social issues we face today? Because if we don't have slavery, even though the Bible lets us, what else don't we have to do that the Bible says? So first, I'm going to show you. Uh, It really starts, the first part, there's a little bit of hint of this going on in verses 1 to 7. But most of that is the traditional uh, beginning of a letter. The body of the letter really begins in verses 8 and following. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. And you see what's coming already? Already two indirect communications. There's something here, Philemon, that you're not doing and you should be doing. You ought to do it. A little guilt coming here. And then I could be bold. I have the position. I could order you to do this. How's Philemon going to resist whatever Paul is about to tell him? Because first of all, he should do it. And secondly, Paul could order him, command him to do it. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. How are you going to weasel out of that? If you love, you'll do this. If you don't do this, you don't love. I prefer to appeal to you because I'm a nice guy. So if you turn me down, not only don't you love, you're also turning me down when I'm being nice to you, even though I don't have to be nice to you. It's, it's as none other than Paul that I write to you. Paul accrues all of his status as an apostle and as the one who led Philemon to Christ. I'm an old man. And I'm now in chains for Jesus. How are you going to turn Paul down? I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. Not I appeal to you for your slave, Onesimus. I appeal to you for my son. You mistreat Onesimus or you treat Onesimus poorly. It's my son you're hurting. What are you going to do? 
He became my son. Again, the chains thing. Well, I'm in chains. How are you going? What are you going? How, how, you know, Paul really could have stopped here and said what he wanted. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. Now, Onesimus is, the name Onesimus means useful. So Paul's making a pun. And so Onesimus has somehow messed up. And he messed up so bad that it's the Asian insult, right? I don't know about the, Taiwan, but in Malaysia, the, the insult you give to your kids when they're disappointing you is useless. So somehow, Onesimus has messed up. And it undercuts everything positive he's ever done. He's useless. Now Paul says he's become useful. And here's the Apostle Paul, uh, Philemon's patron, the person who led him to Christ, his mentor in the faith, saying, well, Onesimus is useful to me, and I'll speak for you, he's useful also to you. It's pretty aggressive. I'm sending him who is my very heart. Not only is my, he's my son, you know, without him, my life has no meaning. Without him, my life has no happiness. <laughs> you know, you got to admire Paul's hubris in doing all this. I would have liked to keep him with me. A little more guilt. You know, I would have preferred that he stayed with me and helped me out. Now, I'm, because I'm sacrificing to give up your slave, I'm sacrificing and send him back to you. I would have rather had him so that he could take your place in helping me. You see, Philemon, actually, you should be here. I'm in jail. I need help. You should be here. But you can't, you're not. At least I can keep your slave, at least in this mess, but no, I'm sending them to you. I mean, you got to have pity on Philemon. Again with the prison thing, while I'm in chains for Jesus. I'm in chains and I ask you to do this. I did not want to do anything without your consent. You got it. This is funny. Paul does not really care much how Philemon feels about this. Or he wouldn't be throwing down so much guilt. You know, basically, yeah, he, legally he can't do Paul legally can't keep the slave. Morally, ethically, he can't keep the slave. But he's making it impossible for Philemon to say, I do, you know, of course you're sending him back to me. It's what I deserve. So that any favor you do would not seem forced. I don't know about you, but I think this is forced. <laughs> but would be voluntary. Yeah, maybe voluntary. Just maybe. Perhaps the reason he was separated you from a little, for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Now this is the first thing that sounds like it might be a benefit, you know. Because, okay, you lost your slave for a little while, and eventually when he turned 30 or 40, you were going to lose him anyway, because that's, slaves are normally freed at 30 or 40. So maybe now you're going to get him back forever. And maybe Philemon's spirit's lifted. Now he'll be a compliant Christian slave. But Paul doesn't let him rest long. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave. As a dear brother. How is Philemon going to assert his prerogative 
as a master over a slave when what defines their relationship now is not master-slave, but brother in Christ. Philemon technically may keep him as a slave, but he can't keep treating him as a slave. He is very dear to me, Paul goes back to that old theme, but even dearer to you. I love him deeply. He's my heart. I have no dissatisfaction or joy in life. He's the one that makes me happy. And now, not only is that to me, now he's even that and more to you, Paul says to Philemon, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Paul just keeps heaping it up. Mm. So if you consider me your partner, you know, it's like it's Mother's Day and somehow you're four or five hours drive from home and you talk to your mother and your mother says, well, if you love me, you'd be here. What are you going to do? If you consider me a partner, you say, here's what makes it worse. Paul was not partner to like Philemon. Paul was patron. Paul was mentor. This makes a big deal in, in first century, just like in Chinese culture often today. You know, given the fact that I'm going to retire and move out of state, one of our former seminarians who considers me a mentor came back expressly to visit me, and the only weekend he was free was a weekend I wasn't free. So he came and visited other people in order to get basically an hour with me because he wanted to see me before we moved out of state. This is a mentor-mentee relationship, and I've always downplayed that, because I'm not Chinese. I don't do this. But Paul was first century, and he understood. So he elevates Philemon and says, okay, okay, I won't do the patron-client thing. You don't have to do what I tell you just because I've done so much for you. you know. But let's just consider ourselves we're peers. But if we're peers, if we're partners then welcome him. Welcome your returning slave with whom you're disappointed. Welcome him as if you'd welcome me, your mentor. It just gets deeper all the time. And, uh, and this is the best. If he's done anything wrong, if he's gotten in some business deal that went bad and you fault him for it and he lost you a lot of money, or if he stole some money from you before he ran away to pay for his trip to see me, if he owes you anything, charge it to me, Paul says. Sounds generous. I'm writing this with my own hand. I promise you, I will pay back. You know, Paul normally wrote letters with an amanuensis, a, a scribe, a, a, a secretary. Paul says... This piece of this letter, maybe the rest of the letter, the amanuensis wrote, but Paul says, this little piece I write with my own hand, so you know I'll do it. I will pay you back anything you forfeited, anything you lost. Uh, but notice what comes next. Of course, you owe me your salvation. You owe me your eternal life. So you want me to pay you a little money, I'll pay you. Just remember that <laughs> you wouldn't go to heaven if it weren't for me. It's just brilliant. I do, I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. The man's in jail. He says, I'm not asking for much. I just, in my misery, 
in my poverty. You know, he's in jail. He's got no money. In, in ancient jail, you had to bring your own food in. You had to get somebody to supply your food. When Paul was in jail, we see in the pastoral epistles, he, he asked somebody who was coming to visit him to bring a cloak because he was cold in jail. So Paul's cold. He's hungry. He's in jail. No one's looking after him. And he says, all I want is a little benefit from you. Refresh my heart. You know, make me happy in this misery. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. What possibly more could Philemon do? He, Paul has asked him, invite your slave back. Treat him. Don't, don't punish him for whatever he did. Don't claim any money he lost. Treat him now as a brother, not a slave. And then, I'm sure that you'll do a good job. It's a subtle way of putting pressure on him. But what more could he possibly do? So look, Paul does not say, free this slave. Paul couldn't. It was seditious to do that. A hundred years earlier, there had been slave revolts in the city of Rome, and the Roman government published legislation to uh, stipulate better treatment of slaves so that they wouldn't continue to have this revolt. Because there's a third of a city is slaves, and they revolt, you've got a destroyed city. So there was laws against the mistreatment of slaves, but it still happened. But there was also laws, severe penalties for sedition and encouraging slave revolt. Paul was not a revolutionary. or Paul did not encourage public revolution, social revolution. But he couldn't. The church was not like the American church. It's not like we can influence the shape, they could influence the shape of their country. They were a small group of people, maybe 50 or 60 believers in any city at any time. They couldn't call for social revolution. They couldn't change the society. But Paul could change a household. He couldn't command, or it was considered bad manners to command it to change. But there's no way that household could stay the same after Paul wrote this letter. And there's no way that slavery could persist if people read Philemon and understood what Paul was saying and doing. So is the New Testament against slavery? Clearly the New Testament makes slavery impossible. Does it directly forbid it and command it? They couldn't. But there's no stronger, more manipulative letter in the New Testament than Philemon. Paul had a clear agenda in mind. Now, I want to take it a step further by way of an epilogue. What do we do now with other social issues? You see, what can happen is 
Um, well, this, okay, so let's look at two separate issues. One is the whole issue of self-actualization. You know, there's been an odd thing that's happened to the gospel in America and wealthy countries, is that now, now the gospel is all about he, healing me and healing my brokenness and God providing for me and making my life full. You know, God is about helping me get into the college I want to get. Oh, God is about helping me be happy even though I have to study hard and play piano and go to Chinese school when I'm a kid. God's about helping me, be, you know, deal with that. Then God's about helping my kids do well so they can get into a good college. And then God's about helping my kids find a good job. And God's about helping my running out of space. Helping my family Oh, I'm actually running out of thread. I'm I'm unraveling. Uh, God's about helping my family be happy, well married, content. God's about me achieving my potential. Maybe not quite so much. Because Onesimus was a slave, and, and God didn't change that. Not immediately, not directly. He didn't suddenly become a wealthy slave owner or patron. Maybe the gospel is not always about self-actualization. But there's other aspects of this. The self-actualization affects our sexuality, you know, uh, our economics, uh, immigration status. We look for God to provide everything we need at a, at a pedestrian level, our looks, our jobs, our marriages, our house, our kids, our health. We look for him to provide satisfaction in, in any issue related to sexuality, that I might get married if I want to get married, that I could stay single if I want to stay single, that I could express myself sexually in any way I want to. We look at economics, God, to provide for our fulfillment and our enjoyment and economics, that we don't always have enough money to be happy and buy what we want. We look for God to provide uh, immigration status when we want it, to help us to immigrate or help us to migrate to a new country. We look for God to bring satisfaction to our lives. And the book of Philemon doesn't promise that God will do that. It recognizes that some places slaves exist. It opposes it. But God doesn't blow the world up to free all the slaves or to change the economic structure that permits slavery. There's another application we want to go with this, is that sometimes people will say, look, the Bible tolerated slavery. We don't tolerate slavery. So we can liberalize from the Bible. And if we can do that with slavery, you could also say, well, look, the Bible tolerated the uh, uh, submission of women. And and we don't tolerate nearly so much the submission of women, and and we want to oppose it. So, So... we're more liberal than the Bible in slavery. We're more liberal in the Bible than uh, on issues of women. And so we should be more, ish- more liberal in the Bible on sexuality. The Bible very repressive on sexuality. And we should be more liberal. If we're going to be more liberal on issues of slavery, if we're going to be more liberal on issues of women's rights, we should be more, issue- more liberal on issues of uh, sexuality. Here's the problem with the logic. With the Bible, it says, you know, the, the culture said slavery is permissible. The Bible takes a strong stand, indirect, but strong stand against slavery. Uh, the first century said women should be more or less seen and not heard, unless they're part of some bizarre cult. And the Bible says, no, women should have more involvement in ministry. And it illustrates them having involvement in ministry. So the Bible is liberalizing the first century culture on slavery. The Bible is liberalizing the first cultural on 
first century culture on women. And so if the, if the culture is here, the first century culture is here, the Bible's here, we can argue that we're continuing the trajectory of the Bible. We can argue we should stay right where the Bible is, or we can say, look, if the Bible took that culture from here to here, maybe the Bible would take our culture from here over here. So we can liberalize the Bible on slavery. And if the Bible took first century culture on women, he liberalized it this far. We can either argue we stop here, or we can argue we follow the same trajectory, and we take it over here. But you notice what happened on sexuality. The, the culture was not here, conservative in the first century. The culture was way over here. And the New Testament consistently and variably says, no, God's call for sexuality is to be here. So while we can follow the Bible when it heads in the liberalizing direction, we can't liberalize where the Bible conserves. If the Bible is calling their culture back to a more conservative position, we can't then justify our culture as we move back to the first century position. So we look for equality economically and for the cessation of slavery. We look for equality on gender issues when we support equal pay for women. But if we follow Jesus, if we follow the Testament, we don't look for the full expression of any form of sexuality because the Bible itself doesn't support it. Let's pray together.